As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. On today's show, we look back on a blockbuster weekend where Senegal took it all in an AFCON final that failed to enthrall. Did we have a ball watching this banal draw unfold? No, y'all. That didn't rhyme. Where Milan had a plan involving a handsome French man. Where Bayern were flying as they left Leipzig crying. And it seems that it'll soon be Nkunku that they're buying. And where Xavi and his crew at the Camp Nou were unable to come through against an athletic side who looked to be in deep doo-doo. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who always be counted on to take the fifth penalty in the proverbial podcast shootout, Taylor Rockwell. And then hope that my team wins or loses so I don't have to take one. That is correct. <laughs> that is my usual approach to penalty shootouts. Is it actually, would you be fifth man? Would I, I, I've, I've got you tapped as a first man, get it over and done with kind of thing, Taylor. Uh, I will if people ask me to, but no, I'm, I'm never the one who wants to take the penalty. I will take a penalty, but I tend to overthink. I have to do like the short run up. Don't think about it. Just hit it and, uh, don't really overthink this. Cause otherwise I will absolutely think myself into like delicately passing it right to the goalkeeper. That's how I approach my podcasting actually, Taylor. Now you mention it. <laughs> Very good. Very you put good. thought into these? I didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> also here is a man whose analysis won't be suddenly cut off in the middle of this podcast for a commercial break because we respect him more than being sports respects AFCON. Joe Lowry, hello. Uh, Ryan, that bothers me so much. So much. We've talked about it before many times at this point in AFCON. I mean, it's done now, but good gracious. Multiple commercial breaks, full screen commercial breaks per half. I don't get it. They're not advertising anything. It makes no sense to me, Ryan Bailey. So, kind of half got to the bottom of this, Joe, during the final game of AFCON on Sunday evening, um, where it transpires, we, I believe we've all been watching, at least uh, three of us have been watching on Fubo, and through the Be In Sports Extra channel, which did have commercial breaks. If you tuned to Be In Sports 6, which is two above Be In The Ocho, of course, um, (laughs) if you scroll down to that, apparently that didn't have ad breaks, and that was successful for me in the second half, Joe. So, quite why they had a feed where you could choose to have ads is quite something. 
I, I, I'm speechless. I am. Spe- I don't understand. Even that explanation really doesn't satisfy me, Ryan. I guess next Afcon, I'll, I'll go to BN the Ocho minus two. I mean, good gracious. Maybe, maybe they just expected the games to be so high drama that they knew maybe we would need a break to just like collect ourselves. Get we your heart need rate down. Yeah. Exactly, and then you come back into it. Although they did play uh, some lovely club music. My wife from upstairs asked me if the game was happening at the club uh, because yeah, they played like nice little techno music for a good 30 seconds to a minute and then we just cut back right to the game as though nothing had happened uh i did follow your advice ryan i did watch it on the other channel and it did work but yeah. it still begs the question why they have one and not the other ob in sports ob in sports uh by the way taylor my wife from upstairs how many do you have <laughs> not the one from downstairs <laughs> Goodness me. I'm not even going to yes and that one. I'm just going to be quiet over here. (laughs) Let's let that one hang in the air and introduce the final member of our awesome foursome, a man whose opinions are more accurate than a Geordie Alba volley, except when he's talking about acceptable food to eat in a stadium. (laughs) Hello, Graham (laughs) Ruffin. Hello, Ryan. And yes, uh, most of my opinions are also um, shinned into the back of the net like (laughs) Geordie Alba's (laughs) volley, which definitely looked better on first viewing than it did in the replays. Still good, though. Still good. Do we... Does he lose credit for the fact that it completely came off his shin then, Graham? Because it was beautiful. If you were sitting in row Z at the Camp Nou, you would have thought that was the best goal ever. Yeah, the the weird thing about it was it had a strange spin on it that did suggest that the contact wasn't entirely clear. And it reminded me of... um, the Wayne Rooney overhead kick in the mm-hmm. Manchester derby, which he mm-hmm. also definitely shinned in, but somehow that one was less, uh, it was more difficult to spot than this one with, with Jordi Alba, which uh, yeah, very clearly came off the bottom of his shin guard. We shall be talking more about that game, Barcelona versus Atletico Madrid on this podcast. We're also going to be covering Bayern Munich and uh, RB Leipzig and the Derby de la Madonina Inter versus AC Milan, and as little as possible on Egypt versus Senegal in AFCON. Before we get there though, Graham, um, we have to bring to the attention of the audience your house. Um, it's transpired over the last few weeks that things blow up in your house when you plug them in. There's an electrical error there. Then we've later discovered that you're Ill, you're quite ill quite a lot of the time. Not like seriously ill, but like you've got a cold 99% of the time. Yeah. Is your house trying to kill you? <laughs> Yeah, so I think it might be. I watched Encanto on Friday night and that's basically my house and my gift is a runny nose and a sore throat pretty much all the time. (laughs) So which kind of ancient burial ground was your house built on? Um, So Taylor joked about this in our group chat uh, the other night and actually the truth is our house was built on toxic farmland (laughs) (laughs) and our foundations has a a membrane on it to stop the, I guess, the fumes of some kind getting up into the house. I should note that my... And I've been told by my wife to mention this, that both my <laughs> wife and my daughter you don't seem to get the illnesses that I have been catching the last two, three months. I have been ill pretty much nonstop for any listeners can probably hear it in my voice. Again, I am once again ill and, and I'm sipping on cough mixture as we record. But yeah, we <laughs> need to figure this out. I need listeners to understand how Graham just casually drops little pieces of this story. Like I'm fully expecting a week from now to hear like, oh yeah, this doll just keeps reappearing. Even when we throw her out, she keeps coming back. There's weird writing and like sort of like satanic looking images on the wall. I don't know why they're there, but they just keep showing up. I'm sure it's fine. Like Graham, Graham has these little moments where it's just increasingly mysterious what's going on over there, Graham. Yeah, Graham, we we do hope you get better soon. And it is not any of us writing in blood on your walls, by the way. That's something else. Okay, just to be clear. (laughs) Joe's been real silent, is all I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to get blood off my hands, Taylor. Good gracious, (laughs) don't blow my cover. Suspicious, Joe. (laughs) 
All right. While we all wonder how uh, farmland becomes toxic and we will ask no further questions, why don't we move on to the AFCON, uh, the AFCON weekend? Because we had the third place game uh, also this weekend, Graham, a, a replay of the opening game of the tournament, Burkina Faso against Cameroon. This one finishing 3-3. Cameroon, yeah. the hosts, winning 5-3 on penalties. Uh, Vincent Abubakar getting two late goals uh, to come back and earn the shootout there. Uh, the comeback starting in the 84th minute, thanks to some fairly common <laughs> defending um Graham this was quite an ending to this game it was and we thought it was a, a precursor to what would be an incredible a dramatic final a showpiece game on the Sunday and obviously as uh, we have hinted to or you have hinted uh, at Ryan that was not the case and this has to be the most memorable you know I personally find third place playoff games at major tournaments kind of pointless I, I'm not entirely sure what the the purpose of them is but this was certainly the most memorable third place playoff game I can ever remember as you say an incredible comeback Burkina Faso seemed to be cruising to that third place and then uh, an incredible comeback by by the hosts Cameroon they win the penalty shootout and that was really as good as the weekend got at AFCON <laughs> it was indeed uh, Taylor if I was to ask you what sporting event would you rather watch on a Sunday evening or a Sunday afternoon the Pro Bowl or this AFCON final Egypt versus Senegal Senegal winning 4-2 on penalties what would be your honest answer that's tough, man. That is really tough because at least with the Pro Bowl, you're going to get sort of ridiculous moments and no one's taking it too seriously. Whereas in this game, it had the same vibe as a Pro Bowl, just a very chippy Pro Bowl. <laughs> two teams wanting to win, sure, but it didn't feel like there was next level strategy or an evolution in tactics. It felt like it was a pretty chippy game and that can be fun if it leads to some sort of like not necessarily violent back and forth but if you get into some conflict if there's some cards handed out maybe there's a red card it opens things up it kind of brings out that feistiness <clears throat> when it's just chippiness that takes maybe 30 seconds to 45 seconds to restart and then there's another foul and it slows it down it starts off really electric and then from about the 15th minute on my notes get kind of haphazard kind of inconsistent and I think I, I was messaging with with you all a lot, which to me shows that it wasn't yeah. the most captivating of games. I think I still say AFCON final because it's a final and not a game that probably doesn't need to happen. That is marginally the correct answer. And yes, our group chat was more entertaining than this game. Mostly we'll talk about how we could have been watching the movie Heat instead of watching this uh, this, <laughs> this game. But uh, all, all the same, this was billed as the big one. Salah versus Mane, uh, two of Liverpool's top scorers, of course, of the Klopp age. Uh, Jürgen Klopp's least preferred final because his players returning as late as possible here. But um, Sadio Mane turned out to be the hero. He took the fifth penalty in the shootout after missing one in regular time, it must be said. Um, Mo Salah choosing to take that fifth uh, Ronaldo penalty penalty too, presumably, but didn't get to take it in the end. Senegal getting their first AFCON title after losing two previous finals. We had two good penalty saves from Edouard Mendy as well. Um, Joe, this game was an Egypt side who haven't looked amazing, who've had two penalty shootouts already in the knockout stages to get to this, uh, and who were beaten by Nigeria in the groups. Maybe that's not a bad thing, but it's them taking on a Senegal side who only scored one goal in the group stages and arguably had a softer route to the final. So maybe we should have seen a less entertaining game coming, Joe. I think less even because of the specific teams playing in this game. We should always, almost always at least, expect major tournament finals to be played like this. I mean, so often they are a, a game between two teams that are trying not to lose, right? And this game certainly had the feel of a major tournament final where neither team wanted to give the other team much of anything. And, and that desire to not lose, to, to defend and to be more conservative 
often trumps a team's desire to win and to really go for it. In this game, there was tons of vertical play, which which has been a core piece of these two teams throughout the tournament, to be fair. Lots of vertical play, especially from Egypt, looking for Mo Salah in behind on the right side. Not a lot of midfield buildup, despite the quality that really each of these teams has in central midfield, but but especially Senegal, there wasn't a ton of interplay between the midfielders in this game. And a lot of tactical fouls. We already mentioned uh, the number of fouls in this game, but they were occurring in the regular run of play. And then also to stop those counterattacks to really give the opposition no chances in those Mm. moments. All of that said, guys, Senegal was the better team in this game, and they did deserve to win. They get the penalty early on. Mane has that penalty saved by Egypt's goalkeeper. It's a really nice save from him. I mean, Senegal pushed numbers forward. They were looking for Mane in behind. They were looking for Idrissa Ganagay in central midfield to try and do some conducting there. This very clearly was a, a better performance from Senegal than it was from Egypt. They were attacking down the right side as well and looking for low cutbacks across for uh, for you know the rest of the front line, either the, the striker or the left winger for Senegal. And I thought they put together some pieces of a nice performance, but there wasn't enough in this game to really make you think, okay, this team is clearly going to get a goal or get two goals in open play in regulation. It's not mm. a surprise that this game went to penalties, given again that it is a major tournament final. The the, the worst thing that that, hap- that happened to this game was was Manny missing the early penalty because obviously if Senegal take that early lead, then the G- Egypt have to to come out and play a little bit, and they they were just. Uh, after that save from uh, Gabaski, who, by the way, was one of the players of the of the tournament, yeah. keep in mind that he was Egypt's second choice goalkeeper. He became a bit of a talisman for them during this during this tournament. Um, I also enjoyed the shenanigans before the penalty kick was taken. Uh, I know yep. Taylor, you enjoyed those <laughs> as well, with Salah going up to Gabaski, telling him where Manny was going to go, and then Manny just walked up to them and, and pointed where he was where he was going to put it. Um, and it would have been even better had Manny actually scored the spot kick. Uh, it kind of backfired slightly on him, but. Yeah, I have to say I was pleased that that Senegal won this. They they at least tried to do something in this game. I know Senegal earlier in the, earlier in the tournament they were struggling um, scoring from open play as well. They they only scored. In fact, they didn't score from open play in the group stages. Their one goal they did score was from the penalty spot. But I do think Egypt were the ones who made this match as it, as it was. Senegal were at least trying to impose themselves with with their with their strategy. Yeah. yeah. I- I agree with what Graham said, and I would add that for Egypt, I think going back to the group stage, no no wins by more than one goal, so every game in the group stage is fairly tight for them. You go to the knockout round, their first game, nil-nil draw. You go all the way to penalties against Ivory Coast, extra time against Morocco in a 2-1 to one win, nil-nil in penalties against Cameroon, and then nil-nil penalties in the final against Senegal. I'm assuming it's just a very tired Egypt team, and an Egypt team that is primarily, as we've talked about, based around Mohamed Salah, so if you're sort of geared on one player and you're pretty heavy legged I think that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the most expansive of game plans and so I agree I think this was Egypt making life difficult for Senegal and then Senegal making life difficult for themselves a couple times Egypt grow into it especially in the second half but for the most part I think it was it always felt like a game that once we reached 90 minutes was going to penalties nothing was going to change that much in extra time and that's pretty much how it played out. Yeah Egypt have played sorry to jump in Egypt have played in eight AFCON finals and have kept a clean sheet in seven of them. <laughs> wow. And and they've conceded two goals in 780 minutes of, of those games, which is 13 hours of football. So we maybe should have expected this from, from Egypt. And, <laughs> and actually going back through some of the, the previous AFCON finals, even ones that don't 
involve Egypt. There's seven goals in the last eight AFCON finals, and you could put that down to, well, final and finals in major tournaments tend to be like that. But in the last eight Euros finals, there's been 17 goals. In the last eight Copa America finals, there's been 16 goals. So pretty much double the, the number of goals in, in those finals and other t- competitions. So this tends to be the way the AFCON finals are. It, it does, and perhaps we should have seen this coming. Of course, all the signs were there. But, I mean, I mean, Ted, to pick up on your point about tiredness, we can certainly attribute that, but we've got to give Carlos Quiroz some lack of credit, I think, for this as well. Because Egypt, as we've said, barely tried to win this. And it's, it's understandable to try and poop house your way to a final. I mean, Portugal Euro 2016 being the archetype for that, perhaps. But when you're actually in the final itself, I mean, why why isn't Quiroz having, setting up a style that at least gets more out of Mo Salah? He's a very, very good player. Why not try and get the ball to him as much as possible? He had, I think, one dribble in this game, a handful of touches. And Egypt weren't exactly playing free-flowing stuff. They were slowing it down. It was quite frustrating to watch Taylor. Mm-hmm. So wh- why, once you got to the final, I understand, like, you know, shutting, shutting teams out to get there. But you've you got to actually try and go for it to win the game, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the age-old problem with having that sort of talismanic player who's up top is that getting them the ball in the first place can be a little bit difficult. And we saw in the lead-up to this tournament, it was a lot of long direct passes for Salah off of like set-piece opportunities going the other way. Like think of Jamie Vardy for Leicester where he'll set up on the touchline and then make these sort of darting runs and find himself in space. I think that was a big part of what Egypt were trying to do, but that has also been the knock against Kirosh since he took over Egypt. There hasn't been a ton of creativity. There hasn't been much in terms of possession through midfield to then find attackers in advantageous positions. It tends to be, let's look for him and hope he creates something. And if you're Senegal and you know that that's the game plan, you can sort of set up to nullify Salah on an individual level, but then you can also set up to make sure that he doesn't get the ball in good positions or doesn't get the ball at all. And I think it's to Senegal's credit that they limited Egypt's primary and maybe only threat. They have other players come in, they have other opportunities, but I think if you can sort of shut down Mohamed Salah you shut down their key player, but you also sort of, in my mind, at least shut down like the spiritual heart of that team and you make it a Mm. little bit more challenging for them to feel like they're getting momentum and finding a way into the game. Well, Salah certainly shut himself down by not taking a penalty in the shootout, mm-hmm. opting to take the fifth penalty, as he has done before in this tournament um, as well. There's there's a bit of a debate to be had around that, isn't there, Graham? Um, I think Jamie Carragher was weighing in quite heavily on Twitter saying, you know, you want your best taker, uh, your highest, uh, your best taker to take the highest pressure penalty, which in theory could be the fifth penalty. But what I don't understand, Graham, is, I mean, I think in a shootout, you want points on the board. Right, that's mm-hmm. the most important thing. Going, you you want to get to that fifth penalty. And another yep. thing which I thought was interesting was, um, if my notes are correct, Egypt won the coin toss and they chose to go second. Most yeah, chose to go that. second. Statistically, you have a big advantage going first in a shootout. So not only did Mosalar elect to take the fifth penalty, but second as well, second to Senegal. So I'm I'm puzzled by these decisions. I think I think with with going fifth, I think I've said before, I, I don't like the whole best player goes last in the shootout thing for all the reasons you've you've said there, Ryan. There is though at least some logic to it. You know, if it if it pans out then it can be that it works out obviously you've got your best player taking the most important spot kick, but the going second thing I just can't I can't understand that. In all in all, all sports, basically going second is like in tennis, you know, you don't want to be serving second in a set. It's the same principle for a, for a penalty shootout. You probably want to be taking the first one. So I think Sadio Mane, there's, a, there's an argument there that the fourth penalty might be where you want your best player taking a penalty. You know, you're hmm. less likely to 
um, not get to the fourth penalty and if you don't get to the fourth penalty then th- that player can't really be blamed because the people before him have obviously uh, screwed up somewhere but it's always a pressure penalty that fourth penalty so I, I feel like maybe if if Salah wanted to take the pressure penalty maybe the fourth one was the was the one to go with one final question from me on this AFCON final this Af- AFCON tournament Taylor um mm. We we are at the tail end of it, obviously. Do you think we'll look back and remember this tournament for positive performances, for good games? I mean, I'm just thinking about it, and I think I feel like there's a lot of not so good games that I've watched in this tournament, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll remember it more for the farcical nature of certain things. Um, you know, the the, re- the referee stopping the game twice, and of course the tragedy that happened at the very stadium that this final was held at as well. I feel like the soccer itself wasn't at the centre of my attentions. I'll, I'll speak for myself and I'll just say a lot of times with tournaments, we've talked about goldfish brain many, many times on this show. When you're covering so many tournaments, when there's so many games happening and then games happen right after those seasons continue, it can be hard to keep track of what happened and precisely when. So you do tend to remember the big moments, those highlight real moments from the tournament. I don't know how many of those we're going to have. What I will say is that it, it feels like the first AFCON that we have covered because we we've covered the last couple in varying degrees of like uh sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for here depth yes thank you Graham. <laughs> that's the one uh but there's never been as much interest in my mind there hasn't been as much mm. like like twitter interaction people following these games people tweeting about the games people in the states trying to find ways to watch it and that has been a drawback i think for a lot of people but to me this is a tournament that i'll remember for growing interest and a growing appreciation and the idea that it's not just those big countries yes it's senegal and egypt in the final it's senegal's first win egypt have been here many many times as graham pointed out and you see do still get sort of big teams in the final but along the way you get a lot of smaller teams outperforming what we thought they would do Mm. you get a lot of surprise results and a good reminder that there is consistent quality across the board in africa not just with some of those sort of more like regularly at the World Cup sort of teams. And I think it it makes me optimistic for future tournaments and for the World Cup to come. Uh, So I think that's how I'll remember this, this competition. That's a very fair assessment. Maybe I was being a bit too salty about the whole thing, just a, a bit jaded after watching 120 minutes of that game, perhaps. <laughs> fair. Uh, fair. Also, by the way, I, uh, being here in Italy, I don't believe it was shown here. Um, so I'm thankful for uh, Fubo and VPN services for my uh, ability to watch that game. May, uh, may I have one more moment of praise, just really quickly from this game, just for Sadio Mane, because he does take the fifth penalty for Senegal, and he takes it perfectly. And that is the Mane who, as we talked about, missed the penalty uh, in the opening minutes. And when he does have the kind of chicanery uh, goofiness with Salah, he points in one direction where he's going to put the ball and he puts it in the opposite one. And so that that penalty being mm. saved, you could think maybe he gets in his head. And yet I think he goes back, takes the final one and slams it into the exact same place he hit the first one, but puts a ton of power behind it. Gaborski had no chance. And I think, Gaborski, excuse me. And I think uh, it was a good way to end the tournament for, uh, for Sergio Mane. It can, I, can I also, if, if we're handing out praise, can I also put in a word for Alusisi? So we've been pretty harsh on uh, Carlos Queiroz, I think justifiably so, as the Egypt manager. Um, I think Sisi deserves a bit of credit as the, the Senegal coach who's been in charge since 2015. Mm-hmm. He's had his critics, but he's built a, a pretty formidable team that's now been crowned. Uh, of course, this is the first time Senegal have won AFCON, so they've been crowned African champions for the first time. And also a word for what Sisi's success signifies for African coaches as yep. a whole. So African coach is, I think it's fair to say, aren't given the respect that they deserve of the four semi-finalists in AFCON this tournament. 
only two teams were coached by African uh, coaches so that was Burkina Faso and uh, Senegal and it shouldn't need saying of course it shouldn't need saying but Cissé proves African coaches should be given the chance to prove themselves at the top level so I say good on him Definitely so. While we're handing out praise, some for me for saying Senegal would win this tournament. Yay? No, no. Okay, (laughs) that's fine. Uh, One final note, um, something I asked on Twitter. Mane and Salah going back to the same place, presumably pretty soon, if not already. Uh, Liverpool presumably paying for their travel. Do they have to share a private jet? And if so, how close do they have to sit to one another after that? That's a a question I'll maybe leave hanging in the air. Unless, unless, Graham, you have an answer to that one. Um... Maybe separate private jets? Uh, Dueling jets! I like mine. Mane's gets there just a little bit ahead of the time and Salaz doesn't take off because uh, he didn't have the opportunity to do so. (laughs) Excellent. That is the correct answer. We'll park AFCON coverage there. Um, And when we come back after this break, let's head to domestic games, specifically the big one in Italy. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking Serie A for a moment where one point separates the top three. Uh, Juve got a 2-0 win over Verona. Uh, Dusan Vlavic scored on his debut. You know what else? Denis Zakaria scored on his debut in this Uh one. I know, right, Graham? Isn't that fun? Uh Uh-oh, Juventus might be good again. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, up to fourth with that win. Uh Uh-oh. Napoli is still quite good. They uh, beat the Venetian fashion brand 2-0 to stay uh, in second place. Interesting events uh, at the Stadio Olimpico. Roma nil, Genoa nil. Mourinho, here's here's a surprise, he was left fuming after the game. Uh, There was a 90th minute goal from Nicolo Zaniolo, who had his goal ruled out by VAR. He was sent off for protesting it. There was a foul by Tammy Abraham in the play that was spotted that was Mourinho's 100th Serie A game uh, where he asked like should we call this game something different or words to that effect because it's not football anymore isn't that fun um, but the other big game or the biggest game in Serie A of the weekend the Derby della Madonina Inter versus Milan uh, AC Milan getting a 2-1 win in this one in what was Build on CBS Sports as the biggest Milan derby in over a decade. Olivier Giroud getting uh, both of Milan's goals in a three-minute period after Perisic opened for Inter. Uh, Tio Hernandez getting a last-minute red for a wonderfully cynical tackle <laughs> towards the end. Uh, Joe, what, what did you make of this one? It did seem um, like Inter were very, very strong in the first half. They were peppering that goal with shots and Milan sort of picked things up in the second. 
Yeah, I agree with all of that. Before I dive into my analysis of this game, first I want to credit CBS for allocating as many resources towards yeah. this game and, and to their coverage of soccer in general. Hmm. Right now, they flew out the whole crew over to Italy, over to Milan for this game. They had the studio pitch side. They had uh, Benetti and, and Cordero doing the call in person there. I, I've enjoyed a lot of what CBS has done, and I think they're doing good things for soccer in the United States. So I, I wanted to give them credit for that. As far as this game goes, Ryan, I think your assessment there is is spot on. Inter, for me, was the better team in the first half by a mile. They found lots of good opportunities in transition. They had good chances off of those moments uh, that they could counterattack. They created a lot in this first half. They didn't you know, blow the doors off in terms of expected goals, but they generated quite a bit in that first 45. And the biggest X factor there for me... And the biggest phase of play that I thought really factored into this game was Inter after they would win the ball deep in their half, counterattacking right through Milan's counterpress or really lack of a counterpress. Over and over again in this first half, Milan would struggle to penetrate, Inter would win the ball, and they would go. And Milan was helpless to do anything. Inter transitioned so quickly, and Milan's counterpressing uh, setup was was really poor in that first half. That even for the goal sequence, yes, it comes off of a corner. Inter's goal, I should say. Yes, it comes off of a corner in the 38th minute, and, and Perisic scores. He hits it first time, and it's a nice finish from him inside the box. But that sequence comes from a counterattack that Milan could not stop in Inter's own half, Milan's attacking half. Inter go right through them, and the ball goes out for a corner after, I believe, it's uh, Lautaro Martinez who gets a Mm. shot that goes out for that corner. That was a huge theme of the first half for me, and it almost flipped on its head in the second half. Milan had a lot more success counterpressing. Eventually, Brahim Diaz comes off the bench to play the 10 spot for Pioli, and, and they were pretty clearly missing that connective tissue in the first half with Kessier playing as the 10. At that point, at, around the time that Diaz came on the field, I thought everything started to change for Milan. Joe, I, I completely agree with you, and I want to go back to that goal for a moment because I think you're right, Milan's counterpress wasn't pr- very effective. I also think they did some interesting things in this game, but didn't set themselves up for glory in the first half, very much did in the second. One of the interesting things they were doing in the first half was trying to man-mark that midfield three for Inter, and that usually meant that you had uh, Kessier sitting on Brozovic, you had uh, Benacer sitting on uh, Chalinolu and Tonali on Barella, and that theoretically made it difficult for Inter to play through, but as soon as one of those 1v1 situations broke down, then Inter had tons of space and tons of opportunity, and Milan had to slide people over to put out the fire. And to me, that's exemplified by the moment that leads to the goal, because it's basically Bastoni dribbling out of the back. It's Teo yep. Hernandez dealing with him in a 1v1. Teo, I think, over-pursues or just gets beaten. But then there's the domino effect of now someone has to try to deal with Bastoni, but they leave a, a person open, and that person then leaves somebody open to cover that person and it kind of goes from there and I think Milan's approach in the second half basically bringing on Brahim Diaz to be the energetic number 10 that can both apply pressure but also hold the ball up and kind of keep it moving I think that was very very smart but I think Milan did a lot of interesting stuff in this game their setup despite being a 4-2-3-1 of sorts Oftentimes had uh, Teo, if the ball was with uh, Calabria on the right-hand side, Teo would become another midfielder very centrally. If the ball was on the left side, then Calabria would move central. And they really were trying to clog the middle and play through it, and I think just create overloads there. And I think it wasn't until Brahim Diaz came on that they were really able to utilize those overloads to find any sort of goal-scoring joy. But I think you're absolutely right that the kind of inability to press successfully and consistently was Milan's undoing in the first half, but their ability to make uh, proactive changes in the second was the, uh, the difference maker for me. Taylor, well, and one thing I didn't understand, Taylor, mm-hmm. in this game, or really anybody who has thoughts on this, 
is Kessier as a 10. Yeah. It, it doesn't... He, right. Yeah, he has some of the skills to pull that off. He has quality on the ball, but he's not the Diaz type of, of player at all in that 10 spot. I, I felt like when, and I think this is borne out in the film of this game, when Milan had possession for the first 45, 50, 55, 60 minutes of this game, they, they created very, very, very little. And they had a lot of possession in this game because Inter score in the first half and generally speaking, Inter were content to hit on the break in this game. But with, with Kessier in there, I, it didn't seem to me like uh, Milan had many attacking chances at all in possession other than maybe to rotate and to get some different legs on the <laughs> field to rest Diaz. Can anybody think of a reason why that move was made yeah. pregame? Uh, the commentators, at least in the opening couple minutes, I think there's three big shoulder to shoulder challenges inside the first two minutes. And they point out that Kessier maybe is in there to be the sort of seeker destroyer because we mm. know he can be calm on the ball, but he can also maybe use his size to his advantage. If you are sort of man marking and then trying to make life difficult for Inter to have a kind of physical component who can hold the ball up and win the ball back, but then also play high up once they do win the ball back, maybe that's the idea. But I think it was just so night and day when Diaz comes in and just the quickness of his movements, how quickly he was keeping the ball going and how he wasn't trying to hold it up, how he was just trying to have a, a quick touch to lay it off to somebody to then check into space and then receive the ball and then you keep it moving that way. I think Milan thought it was going to be maybe a slower, stodgier game. And once they played into a faster, keep the ball moving type of game, I think that's where they had success. So that's my somewhat of an explanation. I'm not sure if it's particularly satisfactory. Yeah, I think my eyebrow raised when I saw Kessie Benesse and Tonali all kind of starting in the middle in this game. And I think it was for reasons that you mentioned, Taylor, about trying to you know, clog, clog the middle a little bit. Uh, but, but that's a sign of a good manager that they you know, made the necessary changes to get that second half going. Um, Graham, Oli Giroud had a pretty good uh, game in this one coming in for Zlatan. Um, he's got great hair. He can still turn and shoot. He can stretch for goals. He's, he's also he's scared of Alf. Did you know that, Graham? He's scared of what? Sorry? Alf. Um, Taylor, do you remember the TV show Alf from the 80s, possibly 90s? Vaguely. I'm with Graham. I thought you said owls at first. And yeah, I, was I thought like, well, you said owls as well. Alf, I and think it stood for alien life form. I know far too much about this. It was like a sitcom where an alien lived in this family's garage and he used to try and eat the cat. Hey, Willie! And it was like, yeah, that's what he sounded like. Um, and there was a YouTube video I watched the other day in which um, he admitted he was scared of Alf as a child and they brought out a little like plush toy of Alf and threw at him and he got very, very anxious indeed. Wow, I th- so this is true. Yeah, he's he's scared of Alf. So he's scared of Alf, and he's scared of being a first choice striker <laughs> at a club. Uh, yeah, in terms of his performance here in this game, it, it's just proof that football makes absolutely no sense sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah. For the majority of this match, I thought he struggled. Not not just not. Um, you know, because of his individual performance, just because AC Milan were str- were struggling generally, he was pretty isolated. They, Milan struggled to get him involved. He had very little service. Um, even when they did get the ball to him, it was just bouncing off him. And then there was a moment where Giroud basically rugby tackles Alexis Sanchez because he basically didn't have the the pace to right. keep up with him. And that, and I thought that kind of epitomised the dynamic of this match for a long time, which. Um, Taylor and Joe have obviously referenced where it felt like AC Milan were doing a lot of chasing of, of Inter. Um, but then Giroud scores two goals in three minutes and he is the 
the hero of this match. Uh, the first goal is an opportunistic finish on the stretch, which comes from a, a good drive from Brian Diaz, um, who we've already mentioned made a, a big impact in this game. He gets to the edge of the box, takes a shot at the flex to Giroud. He finishes on the stretch. And then the second goal, I don't know if anyone else got this, but I got major Federico Makeda vibes from the way he turns his yeah. marker with the sort of the back heel to change the angle and then curls it in with his left foot. Um, so... I think um, looking at the stat sheet, he had 29 touches, uh, only 11 accurate passes. Uh, he had two shots, two goals in three minutes and wins the derby for Milan. So football's a funny game sometimes. It is a funny game. And I must admit, if we just stopped this game at the end of the first half, I'd have thought there's no way that Milan are going to come back and win this one. Just the way that Dumfries was dominating and getting everything over Tia Hernandez as well uh, on that back stick. And Tio, um, Joe, that, that red card at the end, <laughs> a real proper foul that was. And at, the, at first I thought, that's very silly. And then you sort of look at it in the context of the game. And I think it was on Dumfries, wasn't it? He was trying to stop him, stop an encounter there. And he was effectively running the clock down. And as much as I despise Giorgio Chiellini for horse collaring Bukayo uh, uh, Saka in the Euro 2020 final, it had those vibes. It was a real tactical, proper red card that did the job there. Yeah, it, it almost feels like it could have been slightly less severe than it was from <laughs> Teo Hernandez. But Ryan, I think you're right. This game, uh, th- this card, excuse me, happens in the 90 plus fifth minute. It's late on in this game. Milan are trying to really execute the the final moments here and get all three points. And uh, Hernandez does that. Fair play to him. Uh, he'll enjoy not being on the field for the next game for Milan. He will indeed. And I'll, Joe, I'll echo your uh, uh, praise for CBS Sports and the production they've made of this and many other games and getting the team over to Italy uh, for not the first time this season. And Drake Cordero and Matteo Benetti are a real pairing, aren't they? I think they're wonderful on comms. Um, Taylor, you said you uh, before we recorded that you have uh, 16 pages of notes on this game. Anything else you wanted to say on it before we move Actually, on? The, the big one is Bayern Leipzig is the one where I've got an absurd amount of notes. I just I thought this was really fun because... I think anytime you can see the managers just making little adjustments in game to counteract what the other one was trying to do, it, it, it becomes a compelling game, even if the scoreline sometimes isn't. And in this one, as soon as uh, Inzaghi notes that uh, Milan are trying to man-mark through the middle, that's when Bastoni really starts striding into midfield and sort of getting on the ball more often. And then you've got the overload central. So then what do you do if you're Milan? How do you crowd him off the ball? And Milan make adjustments, and that allows Inter to do certain things. And I do think the narrative of the first half was Inter making proactive changes, Milan making reactive changes. And once that narrative switched, Milan have a bit more success. And obviously, uh, Olivier Giroud having a ridiculous Billy Baldwin uh, cutback uh, moment that's a deep cut reference for Total Soccer Show listeners. Uh, that's a great finish from him uh, and really good individually, really good changes. Uh, Salamakins, I think, did not have a very good game. <clears throat> that substitution was pretty timely. So I think overall this game was pretty captivating from an on-field perspective, but also from a managerial perspective. I, I thought um, in terms of Milan, the only player who was consistent, so M- Mignon makes a, makes a number of good saves in the mm. first half, but I thought Sandro Tonali had a good game Agreed. all the way through. He's maybe the only player who who did play well all the way through the match for Milan. Um, I don't want to hear anyone compare him to Andrea Pirlo ever again, because <laughs> there's nothing to it beyond they both used to play for Brescia and they both have similar haircuts. They are very, very different players in this match proved it um, with the energy and drive that Tonali was bringing. He is—he just doesn't play like Pirlo at all, really. 
Yeah, we have a very strong uh, title race in Italy. As I mentioned, one point between the top three and Serie A proving to be probably the most entertaining league in mainland Europe uh, this season. Mainland and the UK. Let's include the Premier League in that statement as well. Now, using the spirit of uh, Chekhov's gun, Taylor mentioned his reams of notes on the Bundesliga game. So why don't we uh, seg into the Bundesliga? Uh, Bayer Leverkusen defeated Dortmund 5-2 on Sunday. Uh, Borussia Dortmund's uh, second home loss of of the league this season. Uh, that left Bayern Munich more on them shortly with a nine-point advantage at the top. Augsburg's survival hopes were boosted by a 2-0 win over fourth place Union Berlin. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, Pepe wasn't in the squad for that one. I think he's still thawing out somewhere. Uh, but that leads us to Bayern Munich 3, RB Leipzig 2. Uh, Bayern twice uh, giving up the lead in this one, but eventually pulling it back by uh, a Gavardiol own goal, a cruel defection from a Serge Gnabry shot that was. Uh, a smattering of fans at the Allianz Arena. I believe it was 10,000 fans permitted after they uh, relaxed the coronavirus uh, restrictions uh, earlier in the week for open air events in Bavaria. Um, a comedy headline from Marka, I noticed. Lewandowski ends one game scoring drought, said, uh, <laughs> said Marka. That was very fun. <laughs> Graham, I'll tell you what else was fun. And we have to cover this first. Julian Nagelsmann, that jacket. He was wearing a high school Letterman jacket with a big M on it. Is this his greatest moment so far of his career um, I mean the greatest moment is surely one of the Champions League suits that he wore when he was <laughs> a Leipzig manager um, so in terms of the jacket itself I didn't think the jacket was actually that bad it's something that I, I might even wear uh, at some point but I don't know about Nagelsmann he just, uh, he just tries three. a bit too hard <laughs> <laughs> So the, the marketing worked on Graham he's going to be buying whenever Adidas released this jacket so but not for you I mean, no, I, I was constantly worried if Nagelsmann was going to find an, an almanac from the future. He had that look going on. Uh, he had every villain coach from the 80s. I kept expecting him to scream sweep the leg at one point. He just looked like a like a, a, a roided out jock at times. And especially because he has the, the high pitched scream and there there was limited attendance in this one. You can hear him throughout the game. And it's just this like almost comically overbearing like football coach like high school football coach but instead it's an in incredibly talented and gifted manager for one of the best teams on the planet so I, I guess in that way a successful look in that no matter how ridiculous he dresses his team still wins I, I like to think there's someone at Adidas who is who's at this point just seeing how far they can push him Dude, and just sending him stuff and going right send him this hat see if he'll wear this hat <laughs> I think that's what it is like at a certain point you know you're going to get clicks you know you're going to get some attention and maybe it's a way to distract if things don't go well that's all I can figure oh, either that or Julian Nagelsmann just loves ridiculous fashion choices either way always entertaining He's very fierce. I love it. And uh, long may it continue. Uh, Joe, this one, I would describe this game as the antidote to the AFCON final. A great attacking game. Uh, we have a couple of back threes on display here. Um, and at least, I'm going to say, four of the goals as a consequence of loads and loads of space at the back, Joe. Yeah, tons of goals, tons of space. I mean, lots of shots, lots of chances. Expected goals were both high. Uh, in this game, this was a thriller. This was a really, really good game. Leipzig, man, they were so close to getting a point, at least in this game. Instead, Bayern continued to extend their lead at the top of the table, only magnified by the fact that Dortmund lost this weekend, widening the gap between first and second. Mm. But man, this game was so much fun. Uh, Bayern Munich right now is just wonderful to watch. They come out in this game in a 3-4-3 shape, Ryan. You referenced the back three with Kingsley Coman and Serge Gnabry as the wingbacks. 
Juventus. And I think that pretty much tells you everything you need to know <laughs> about how Bayern Munich are approaching soccer right now under Nagelsmann. Tons of attacking talent on the field. You have those two players I just mentioned who were attackers in this game. You have Thomas Muller and Leroy Sané. You have Joshua Kimmich and, and Tolisso in midfield. And then Lewandowski up top. This was a stacked lineup from Bayern Munich. They played some good soccer. Lots of possession in this game. I thought they did a really good job of overloading RB Leipzig's midfield two in this game. Kevin Campbell and, and Leimer to start off from uh, from Tedesco in this one. Leipzig defended in this 5-2-3 kind of shape. They're in a 3-4-3 in possession as well. And Bayern did a good job of overloading those spaces. They had Kimmich as the deepest point in their midfield group. Tolisso was higher, almost as a 10 at times. Then you had Sané and Thomas Muller wide and just outside of Leipzig's midfield two. And Bayern had a lot of success playing around that midfield two of Leipzig and working the ball into the attack and, and really going once they moved the ball past that midfield group for Leipzig. I thought that was an approach that worked well from Nagelsmann and from this, uh, from this Bayern Munich team. And then lots of goals, man. Muller in the, in the 12th minute. Lewandowski gets one in the 44th minute. Vardiol's own goal, which comes off of a pretty nice sequence of play with, with Gnabry getting on the ball on the right side of the box, cross in, and then it deflects off of Vardiol. Man, I mean, Byron were on today, and they weren't always airtight at the back, but for us, guys, that just makes things even more entertaining. It does indeed. And Joe, a note on Nkunku, who was oh. Yaya Torre-esque with his runs through the middle in this one. Um, what did you make of him, and how soon do Bayern Munich buy him? I don't think I've ever thought of Nkuku and, and Yaya Toure in the same sentence, Ryan, but I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> he's He will not be at Leipzig for long at this point. You go through and you look at his underlying numbers. He is a phenomenal player when you look at the stats. And when you watch the film, of course, those things are aligned. He is a star right now for this Leipzig team and has been all of this season and dating back to last season, dating back even to time with PSG. You could see the potential there. Nkunku was playing as as part of a... It was at times a two and other times a three. It was pretty flexible from Tedesco in this game in that front line. But man, he was everywhere, seemingly always. Great bit of skill, a number of different times in this game. Lovely ball to Olmo in the 18th minute. Good movement in behind, and that's how he scores his goal. RB Leipzig win the ball near midfield in the 53rd minute. Leimer finds Nkunku in behind, and he scores. I mean, the, the speed that he plays at makes everyone else look slow. And that's not easy to do when you're playing for a Leipzig team that was at least in part built depressed, even though they're not doing that stuff as much anymore. And Kuku mm. can fit pretty much anywhere in the world right now. He could play for City. He could play for Liverpool. He could play for... I mean, he could, he could do anything he wants. He's that good. He is indeed. Taylor, your thoughts on Leipzig and their setup in this one? I thought uh, Nkuku was obviously very good. Guardiola had a pretty good game here. Your thoughts on how they set up and what Tedesco did here? I think Tedesco made some really smart changes because... After that first goal, I, I thought there was a chance that we were going to get like 3-0 at halftime. Bayern just looked so dominant. They were all over Leipzig. Leipzig really struggling to play out or find any sort of possession to calm things down. So that it we get to halftime and it's what, 1-1? to And then I think, or excuse me, 2-1, to but it's still pretty tight. And then Tedesco makes a really smart change in my mind. He takes off uh, Kevin Campbell. He brings on uh, Soboslai. And essentially has Danny Olmo go and play as a central midfielder. Soboslai uh, stays up top until there's another change, and then Soboslai goes to the midfield. But I think Kempel was in there to be the kind of patrolling midfielder, to be high-pressing, to win the ball back, to, th- to do the defensive job. And I think Tedesco recognizes at halftime, 
we have to go out and get a goal to equalize, but also we haven't really been able to keep up with Bayern Munich. We haven't been able to cause them much frustration. So I think the plan basically was he has Danny Olmo come in, uh, partner Limer in the middle, and then the two of them can probably combine a little bit better, have a little bit more technical precision on the ball. And if they need, Willy Orban would step out and be another midfielder. So at times mm. it was like a 4-3-3 shape with Willy Orban the deepest. And that gave them more of a funnel. They could funnel those, uh, the Bayern attacks a little bit more, but they had a better ability to play out. And that's how they get the equalizer. They win the ball back, uh, in their own half, but then it's a quick series, uh, quick series of passes. Soboslai, I think with a, with a nice little layoff, a smart layoff at that launches or opens up the counterattack a little bit. And so I think that was a really smart change <coughs> from Tedesco, but I think, uh, as much as I've made fun of Nagelsmann uh, for his wardrobe, you can never really fault him for his tactics, or at least rarely. And in this case, hmm. I certainly don't. I thought one thing that was really interesting I saw happening pretty regularly, and it worked pretty effectively, was whenever Leipzig were trying to press high, when they were trying to make the Munich back three uh, uncomfortable, Joshua Kimmich would always go pretty deep. And one of those back three would sometimes, let's say it was Pavar playing as a right center back, sometimes he would push out onto the like the right channel, that would allow Gnabry to go further forward or sometimes central, but Kimmich would become that third center back. And what happened, it was like they did it, one time it happened in the sense that it didn't work, and they recycled it did it again and then it worked but you would get let's say Hernandez the left center back gets the ball he would play it to Sula and then Sula would play it to Kimmich Kimmich would shape like he was going to play it out wide to the right and then would cut it back and play it back across to Hernandez and that's it that's not like it's not brilliant to cut back the brilliant part of this is as soon as Kimmich would play that ball he would sprint centrally and sort of follow the pass but at a different angle to be in a more advanced position and I think this was based on knowing that Leipzig once that ball went back the other way the way they would press would change the person who was on Kimmich would slide over to Sula because now you're trying to trap Bayern in one corner if you're Leipzig, but Kimmich would constantly move centrally, split those two Leipzig pressers, and so then Hernandez could play the ball right back to Kimmich, and it was this basically elongated wall pass that Kimmich would then get the ball turned, and he would have 30 yards of space because that midfield two for Leipzig would stay a little bit deeper, and that's why, if you remember in the second half, Kimmich just starts spreading balls and playing direct balls in and creating chances from really deep, and it's one and two touch passes to play those balls, but all of it is because of that quick little rotation, that quick little pattern. And I think that's what Nagelsmann does so well, is he mm. has those little moments that you can build on and then let your team, which has all this attacking talent, play. If you have those moments to start the move, you rely on your creative players to finish the move, and Bayern did that pretty successfully. Well, hang on, Taylor. Do you credit Nagelsmann for the Kimmich's movement and for his tactics there, or do you credit Kimmich? Because he does his own research, Kimmich. Yeah, so, I don't really love crediting Kimmich for most things. Uh, in this case, I mean, I think he, he's doing it really well, and it's clearly an instruction, but then it's up to the player to execute and, and do what's needed. There's one moment, it's so ridiculous, that like he, he plays the ball, and you can see him need a second to be like, all right, here we go, and then he goes off on that sprint. And that was the moment that made it like an official thing that kept happening for me was because you could see him being tired of doing it, but still having to do it. So I guess credit to Kimmich for that and for playing uh, some pretty incisive passes as well. Yeah, Kimmich knows best about everything. Graham, um, <laughs> your thoughts on Bayern Munich? And uh, well, let's, they've got the Champions League coming up um, next week. Mm-hmm. Is there any cause for concern in terms of the defending or anything else you saw here? 
Yeah, I, I I personally saw so the, so the, so the first thing to mention is this game wasn't shown live in the UK, which was uh, quite a decision by Sky Sports. Uh, they decided to show I think it's Swansea Blackburn Graham, instead. How many how many channels does Sky Sports have? Just to be clear for the listener, um, it's in the tens. A lot of channels. <laughs> right. Okay. Great. There was there was a lot happening apparently on Saturday. Sure. So I've only seen extended highlights of this game. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I. Um, thought they were they were kind of slightly sloppy at times it seemed like they they could move up the gears quite easily i think that's the positive to take out of the Bayern Munich performance i i feel like this we still didn't see the best of Bayern Munich which is quite something given the level that they still managed to to play at but yeah i, I love how Nagelsmann is just we i think we all expected some sort of tactical overhaul a revolution when he came into Bayern Munich from RB Leipzig last summer he hasn't really done that it's more been evolution rather than revolution and and i think that has been wise he's just sort of introduced a few new ideas um, Joe mentioned they're using um, kind of wing backs in a slightly different way I like that that's just keeping things fresh so I, I think there may be the Champions League as you say comes back next week they're maybe the only side that can stop the, the three Premier League teams or maybe even the two Premier League teams Liverpool and, and Man City I would say those three teams are probably the favourite to, to win that tournament but just looking at this game, I have to mention one of the most interesting aspects of this match that I found was the, the, the coaching matchup between Nagelsmann and Tedesco, and it made me want more of this. This has been... So these two guys have been billed as the best two coaches in Germany for a long time. It's the first time since 2019 that they have actually faced each other. And a lot has changed since then. Uh, Nagelsmann was at Hoffenheim, Tedesco was at Schalke. They're two good pals. They were classmates at the the German FA, the DFB's coaching school. They graduated from the same class in 2016. Did they get letterman jackets when they graduated? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Tedesco just left his at home. Um, yeah, and much has been made of how Tedesco got a higher mark in that class than Nagelsmann. Nagelsmann was asked about that before the game and he kind of laughed it off. <coughs> but um, these two were expected to reach the top of the German game from the moment they entered coaching. So this match with one in charge of the defending champions and the other in charge of potentially the only team that can challenge them in RB Leipzig, it felt like the culmination of something and it made this game made me excited for next season obviously Leipzig are far too far adrift to make anything of their season in terms of a title char- challenge right now but I think Tedesco's putting in place the groundwork that could potentially get them closer to Bayern Munich after the summer and then when you factor in that Bayern have a bit of upheaval coming with uh, Sula who's already said he's leaving at the end of the season mm. they've still to sort out contracts for Nabry and Tolisso so it's not impossible where you know Leipzig are improving under Tedesco Bayern Munich have to rebuild slightly this summer it's not impossible where you have these two teams led by the two best young coaches in the country going for the title next season is it impossible there's a title race this season though Graham this season yeah are we done? Uh, no, it's over. Yeah, also. <laughs> All right. A fun game, but it did. Uh, well, Dortmund, I suppose, helped kill the uh, German title race this weekend. Thanks, Dortmund. All right. Uh, that's the German soccer covered. When we come back after this break, we're going to go to the Camp Nou. We're going to round up the FA Cup. And goodness me, the Club World Cup started this weekend too. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attention to La Liga. Real Madrid got a 1-0 win over Granada. Marcus Asensio with... Graham, how would you describe Marcus Asensio? Sure, a goal, um, an angled thunder shot? <laughs> I was trying to keep it clean. going to go there without swearing. Um, yeah, it was a very Marco Asensio yeah. goal. When I went to when I went to the Bernabeu uh, to watch Real Madrid a few years ago, he scored something that wasn't too dissimilar from this goal. So he, it's in his locker, shall we say? It is indeed. Uh, Barcelona four, Atletico Madrid two is the game. We're going to take a quick look at a mix of old and new Taylor for Barcelona. Adam Traore debuting a goal, an assist, and a red card for Dani Alves. Quite the trio for him. Barcelona now in fourth place, uh, which seemed relatively unlikely not so long ago. Atleti, meanwhile, look like they're in need of uh, getting back to the drawing board in many respects. Um, Taylor, what are your thoughts on this game um, and perhaps your thoughts on Barcelona? It seemed like they were in you know, quite a deep crisis a few weeks ago, but if you turned up to the Camp Nou and you didn't know anything about a few months ago, you'd think, oh, everything's rosy and fantastic. Look, Barcelona doing goals. I mean, I I would agree with you, and I'm kind of annoyed that that was not in the end how it played out because then they they give uh, Atleti a little bit of a lifeline with that second goal, and then there's the red card to Dani Alves. So there still feels to be a little bit of sort of unpredictability to Barcelona, a little bit of chaos in there. Mm. But those moments aside, uh, uh, Ian Dark uh, at the start of this game called this a crossroads match. Which way is the season heading for both teams? I think that was pretty apt and pretty sharp. I think if we're following that, this is maybe a very bad sign of what's to come for Atleti, and I think there are definitely some warning signs there. And for Barcelona, I, I would be feeling pretty optimistic if I worked for Barcelona, if I were a fan of the club, because they looked very good, and it seems like Xavi has very specific ideas for how he's going to get the best out of certain players, Adama chief amongst them. I thought it was really interesting that he starts Dani Alves as a right back in the 4-3-3, but Dani Alves is almost always playing as another central midfielder. He's sometimes right next to Sergio Busquets. I have to think Araujo got annoyed at times because Dani Alves in moments was maybe two yards ahead of him calling for the ball. But what that effectively did was completely cleared out the right-hand side and made it Adama versus Hermoso. And that did not work at all for Atleti or for Hermoso. <clears throat> uh, Adama Traore really opening up that one side and causing a lot of problems to Atleti, who changed their formation for this one, tried to mirror what Barcelona were doing with their 4-3-3, and that absolutely did not work. Uh, Adama Traore was, was rampant until eventually Simeone changes his shape to try to get some support out wide. That gives opportunities through the middle for Barcelona, and I thought this was a pretty strong result. The red card and the two goals conceded aside. Yeah. Taylor, if this was a crossroads game, I don't get the impression that Diego Simeone met the devil at the crossroads and exchanged his soul for the ability to set up a defense, because that didn't really happen here. I mean, I think <laughs> this is going to be harsh. I think <laughs> if anything, what happened is that he uh, he basically... The, the deal he made was we'll have sust sustained success uh, against the, the bigger clubs in Spain such that we will become one of those big clubs at the price of I will have to try to figure out Jao Felix every single game because, man, is that guy frustrating. I feel for Atleti fans who have to be 
really confused by this player who is so expensive and can be so good in moments, but can also be so frustrating. He has big misses in this game and in a couple key moments where it could have made a difference, could have pulled Atleti back into the game in the first half, made things a bit more competitive when they're already 1-0 up. I think he has a chance to make it 2-0. He has a chance to make it 2-1. He doesn't do that. And... I have actual sympathy for Simeone because I think he has to play Felix. He has to try to get the best out of him. But I don't think he still knows how to do that. Uh, and just to clear up, uh, Taylor, um, it was Laszlo from What We Do in the Shadows who met the devil at the crossroads and exchanged his soul for, and I quote, being really good at guitar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you keep it vague. It works out well. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Graham, what did you make of Danny Alves here? He had quite the um, starring role here, playing in a different position. He claimed he was more of a midfielder in this one. What did you make of him? Yeah, he did the sort of Yao Cancelo thing um, Taylor mentioned there where he is pushing into central midfield. Obviously, that's how he ends up in a position to score Barcelona's fourth goal of the game with a a shot from the edge of the box. I thought he was very effective in creating a lot of overloads in the attacking third. And as Taylor also referenced uh, earlier, you know, he created a lot of space for Adama Traore. And I'm going to say my piece about Adama Traore because he's a player that I've been critical of, of in the past. And I've not fully understood the hype until now. And he's in this Barcelona team. And I think, okay, here we go. This this setup could actually work. And I think we were given a demonstration of exactly why Zabi wanted Traore to return to Barcelona. So he, he starts on the right side of the Barcelona attack. He's arguably their best player, along with uh, De Jong and, and Dani Alves. And he was just continually pushing Atleti back. He was drawing in two, even three players at a time. He's the sort of funnel into the final third that that Barcelona um, have lacked so far this season. We saw that for the second Barcelona goal where he stands up his man, he gets to the byline, he gets a cross in and Ferran Torres heads home. And Barcelona don't really have another player who can do that. Usman Dembele should have been that player, but for one reason or another, he hasn't been that player and they've basically given up on Dembele, who's going to leave at the end of the season as a free agent. Traore is the replacement for him and he seems to be doing a better job of that role than Dembele ever has. And obviously the final product has always been the bit of Adama's game that's been questioned. By the way, he's now registered more assists in La Liga this season, one, than in the Premier League for Wolves all season. Wow. Um, so that's quite something. But even looking beyond this final product, which there, there will be games where it's lacking from his from his performance for Barcelona. Um, but he's, so, he's going to be so important to this Barcelona team. He, he demands attention from opposition defenders. They get drawn to him to try and stop him. And that is instantly going to create space for others in this Barcelona team. And we saw that in this game. I, th- I think it was no coincidence that De Jong arguably had his best ever game for Barcelona, that D- Dani Alves had the freedom to drive into the middle of the pitch. So it was a, a mutual agree- uh, arrangement where Dani Alves was creating the space for Traore. Traore was creating the space for Dani Alves. And what I also really liked from Traore was when Atleti did change their shape, when Carrasco was pulled over to man Mark Traore to try and help out Hermoso, um, Traore didn't try too much. You know, he recognised that this was creating space for others and so he started making quick, short passes. He wasn't taking on his man as much. He was recognising the space was now in other areas of the pitch and he he adapted his own game for that. So that's a sort of intelligence that maybe I haven't normally associated with with Traore, who I found a very frustrating player up until this moment. But I I feel like Xavi's system um, could get the best out of him and he will make Xavi's system... Uh, even more effective. Graham, Joe. he reminds me uh, like in the NBA sense of a volume shooter and just give him the opportunities and he will make something happen. But if you're Wolves and you're relying on this counterattack, minimal possession, you've got to take your opportunities and take them really effectively and efficiently. Then if there is a little bit of wastefulness, if some of the cross
crosses aren't quite there, maybe it stands out a bit more. Whereas with Barca, it just felt like he had freedom to try stuff, to do different things. And even if it didn't come off because of the way they were counterpressing, they were usually winning the ball back in advantageous positions, sometimes even in Atleti's box. And I think even when he doesn't have the best of service, and there were moments when he didn't, it still somehow leads to opportunities or at the very least makes the opposition vulnerable or uncertain as to how they're going to proceed. So I think I, I was like que- like uh, somewhat optimistic, somewhat surprised by the move, but to see this team play today, it felt like a very, very strong Barcelona team that we haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah. Um, Joe, do you concur with the analysis of Troy Ori, by the way? I know you were looking into him a little bit. Yeah, I thought Adama was good in this game. I'll, I'll start with that. I thought he was excellent on that right side. Not perfect, sure, but did exactly the, the thing that you expect from him. He drew players and he created space for others. That's a good thing. And I can see it helping Barcelona as the season goes on. I, I just think it's too early for any of this. I think you go through and you look at the goals that Barcelona score against Atleti. And yeah, there's some phenomenal strikes, but I don't think those goals go in very often. Jordi Alba doesn't shin that volley in very often. Danny Alves probably doesn't score his goal very often. I don't know how much you can rely on Gavi jumping up and, and heading the ball into the back of the net on a consistent basis. So while I can see some benefits positionally with bringing Alves in as an extra central midfielder, he has plenty of quality on the ball. If you really squint and you see the number eight on the back of his shirt, you might be confused and, and you might be, uh, you might be licensed to mix him up with a certain former Barcelona central midfielder. That's how much technical quality he has. I like the idea of a Dama being on that right wing, but it's it's too early for me to really make any sweeping conclusions about this Barcelona team. We don't really know how Obama Yang's going to fit in. He comes off the bench in the second half and doesn't do much as a nine. He tries to exploit some space. That's his game. Doesn't have a ton of service, but at that point, the game's pretty much over anyway. And Adama gets plenty of touches on that right side. Ferran Torres starts as the nine. I think there's there's some solid potential here. But I want to see this team create a lot more high quality chances before yeah. we really say Adama's the guy. Yeah, I think I think that's entirely fair, Joe. And the Barcelona have the derby this weekend against Espanyol. It wouldn't surprise me at all if after beating uh, Atleti fairly convincingly, if they were to drop points in that game. That's kind of where Barcelona are at the moment. But just looking at kind of. I think maybe the most impressive thing about Barcelona right now is the tactical fingerprints of Xavi are, of Xavi are now all over this team and I, th- I think they're now playing in a really different way to how they were playing under Ronald Koeman and considering he's only been in the job for what how long is that two three months um, I think that is inqu- that is quite impressive and that, that does bode well so Absolutely, you're right. I'm not saying they're totally turned the corner, but I think they are starting to turn the corner. I can see logic in what they're doing, whereas previously there just was no logic at all. So I think that is uh, that's some progress at least. Wonderful stuff. And you mentioned if Koeman reminds me of Suarez not cheering too hard for his goal in this one, Graham, because he didn't have Koeman to gloat in front of, I think, in this one. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, some positive signs for Barcelona. Atleti have got a Man United coming up in the Champions League next week. Barcelona's Champions League opponent are um, oh exactly yeah okay never mind um, let's uh, look to round up the other business of the weekend we'll go to the FA Cup and the fourth round Chelsea went 1-0 down at home to League One's Plymouth Argyle Green Army uh, nice cheeky back wheel equaliser from Dave Asperlaqueta in that one they needed a 105th minute winner from Marcus Alonso to go through um, and a, there was an extra time penalty save as well that kept Chelsea in that one Thomas Tuchel by the way Graham did you know he tested positive for COVID right in time for the Club World Cup wonderful 
<laughs> convenient convenient issue if you will yes uh, there was a struggle also for West Ham they were at non-league Kidderminster Harriers uh, they led West Ham from the 19th minute until the 90th when Declan Rice ruined all the fun and rifled in an equaliser uh, with the pace of a Sadio Mane winning penalty um, and Jared Bowen broke uh, Kidderminster's hearts uh, just before a shootout was about to occur in the 120th minute gutting yeah, Graham do you, have you seen Kidderminster Harriers crest their logo it's it's like a phoenix or an eagle, but it's weird. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird, it's isn't it? It's some sort of bird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a bird grabbing an a ball. Eagle, anyway, um, Super Frankie Lampard, Lampard excuse me, got a big win in his first Everton game, a 4-1 win over troubled Brentford. Uh, a free hit in his first game there, and he did pretty well, I would suggest. The same scoreline, uh, Nottingham Forest, 4-1. They beat Leicester City in a localish derby, which saw quite a lot of trouble before the game. There's some videos on the Twitters of some naughty fans doing naughty things before that game. Uh, Forest dominating with 39% of possession. Make of that what you will. There was also um, a Leicester fan who got onto the field and decided to lay some punches on the celebrating Forest players after one of their goals. Not great. Tell you what was great, though. A big win for Boreham Wood. Uh, they got a 1-0 win at Bournemouth. Uh, Boreham Wood are in the fifth tier. They're non-league. Uh, Bournemouth are going for automatic promotion in the Premier League and looking to come back to the Premier League. Uh, Graham, they're managed by Luke Garrard of uh, Boreham Wood. Uh, of course, uh, AFC Wimbledon legend, as you know, Graham. And uh, of course. You know, all I can think of this this could have been us. Do you know who Boreham would be in the round before this? AFC yeah. Wimbledon. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, are you mentioning Boreham Wood so much because it makes Wimbledon look better that they yes. lost to them and now they've beaten Bournemouth? We need is everything we can get. Happening? We need everything yeah. we can get. And uh, this, the strange thing about Boreham Wood is there. So anyone who's seen the team name, it's Boreham and then another word, Wood. But they're from a, a, part, a, a place called Boreham Wood, which is all one word. So why did they decide to make the club name two words? Oh, God. That's my question. That's going to bother me from now on. Um, we'll get to see more of them, Graham, because they're playing Everton in the next round. Also, their, sh their shirt sponsor on their shirts is a giant uh, logo that says Wood Army. Uh, maybe their name is in two parts because of that. And I'm suggesting there's not a company called the Wood Army. I think there might be something to do with their uh, fan base there. I mean, uh, I feel like a, a connection to the Portland Timbers seems pretty logical. That needs to be a sister club situation, I think. Yeah, they need a Boreham Joey to uh, <laughs> carve up some wood before uh, Lampard comes I to think town. if it's English, it would have to be uh, uh, Joseph, no? Yeah, Joseph. <laughs> anyway, uh, big result for Norwich. Gave you a 1-0 win at Wolves. Man City dominated Fulham by another 4-1 scoreline. Uh, the draw sees Luton play Chelsea. Peterborough playing Man City. Middlesbrough playing Spurs. Uh, Taylor, can you... I can't remember. It was quite far away. What happened with Middlesbrough's FA Cup game? Uh, they beat a completely overmatched and outgunned uh, team that had no chance even trying to get a win. Ed, that game was ridiculous. The starting lineup for Manchester United was like eight forwards, and they still struggled. Uh, I felt so bad on the penalty shootout. Uh, but, you know, uh, cre credit to Middlesbrough for getting the result. Yes, indeed, indeed. Credit to Middlesbrough for that Sigh. one. Uh, yes, and they'll be playing the Tottingham Hotspurs in the next round, as I say. Yeah. Um, start of the Club World Cup happened this weekend, Joe, don't you know? Uh, this in Abu Dhabi. Al-Ali beat Monterey 1-0 in the uh, first game of that. This is the 2021 edition, by the way, with seven teams. This was supposed to be the fancy expanded format with 24 teams. We're going to get that treat next time around, apparently, because they decided it wasn't appropriate at this point. Uh, Monterey, though, CONCACAF Champions League winners are eliminated by Alali with that 
game. Alali missing a lot of first team players as well. I believe the number is 15 players out, many of whom six, I believe, were in, a, in the AFCON final as well and have got some injuries as well. This being played the same weekend as the AFCON final. Um, on Sunday, we also had Al Hilal uh, beating Al Jazeera 6-1. Al Hilal are the uh, AFC Champions League champions. Al Jazeera are the local team from Abu Dhabi, <laughs> the winners of the UAE Pro League. Yeah, they qualified as hosts and they are no longer part of this. Um, Alali are going to face Palmeiras in the semi-final on Tuesday. Palmeiras being the Copa Libertadores winners and Chelsea enter the fray and they play the aforementioned Al-Halal, the aforementioned AFC Champions League champions uh, midweek. The final is on Saturday. Taylor, on a scale of 1 to 100, how excited are you by the Club World Cup? I can almost literally hear crickets as you run through the scoreline. That is my answer to your question. <laughs> Let's move on swiftly. Um, Joe, big news with MLS transfers. Power Cube coming yes. to town. Yes. <laughs> Graham. Oh, I'm so happy for you, most of all, Graham Ruthven, for, for anything that could have happened here. It sounds like Shakiri is coming to the Chicago Fire. I, I genuinely don't know how it's going to play out on the field. I don't know what the fire are going to look like under Ezra Hendrickson this year. They could be an absolute disaster. I think they're probably more likely to be bad than they are to be good. But I think they're trending towards entertaining right now. If the Shakiri deal goes through, they have themselves a playmaker, someone who can really cause problems for opposing defenses. I think he's still got some miles left in his legs, although if you look at his injury history in recent seasons, things don't look particularly good for Shakiri. But hey, maybe all that time on the bench for Liverpool will, will give him some extra push here in Major League Soccer. I don't know, but I am sure excited to see the power cue play in Major League Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> and and so am I. I mean, I am pretty fascinated with Serdan Shakiri, the Power Cube, as a character. He reminds me of. Um, I was trying to think before we recorded what he reminds me of. He reminds me of your friend's slightly weird brother who got into weightlifting after they left high school. That's kind of how I think of Zerdan Shakiri, and I am very excited for him to be in MLS. I think it's going to be really fun. And but they like only ahead. focused on the muscle groups that they could do really well. So like he did a lot of neck machine muscles, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking the glamour about. glamour muscle, muscles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, him and his hair transplant are coming to town, uh, apparently so. So we shall see <laughs> how that goes. Uh, Graham, we are. I, I'm affording the opportunity to finish this podcast with a flourish. The notes here say, Arbroath, what have you got? Oh man, Arbroath, the part-time wonders, the Red Lichties, as their nickname. Um, they beat second place Kilmarnock on Friday night. 1-0 to move four points clear at the top of the Scottish Championship. I still can't really believe this is happening, but as things stand, they are the best team in that division. They are on course for promotion to the top flight. I don't know what happens if they get promotion to the top flight. That's the exciting bit. Their stadium is barely a stadium. They are, I repeat, they are a part-time team. These players have day jobs, uh, yet they are a very good team. 13 games to go. I have become a de facto Arbroath uh, fan, which I don't even know if that's allowed because Sterling Albion, I would consider them to be on sort of a, a par with Arbroath in terms of their size and stature. And we've spoken previously about whether it's acceptable to support two teams in at, like at the same level in the same country. So I don't even know whether that's allowed, but I definitely want Arbroath to get promoted now. And they, they're so good. I'm, I'm just, I have to, I feel like I have to provide <laughs> updates every week on, on how they're doing. That's a wonderful story, Graham. I look forward to hearing more. Makes notes to cut Graham's Scottish bit out of podcast. <laughs> oh, that's the weekend review done. So thank harsh. you very much, listener. In the meantime, though, I'll thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Thank you so much. Right back at you, buddy. Thank you so much. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always. 
Graham Rudford, stay well, sir. I mean, I'll try. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> Until next time, listener. Bye. Yeah.